Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Good to see all of you this morning. It is uh, such a great pleasure to be here with you. Um, I was here a few months ago and uh, get to be back. I'm just so uh, so excited about what God is doing among you. Uh, what a great day uh, to celebrate. We are so excited to think about the future of City Church. Uh, you've done so well. So not just Justin and Angie, but all of you as well. So uh, congratulations. Uh, we are thrilled uh, and so excited to see what the Lord does. We have high hopes. We have big dreams for this church and what it will mean for the city of St. Pete. And thinking about that brought me to this text in Matthew chapter 13, which I want to look at with you for a few minutes this morning. It sits right in the middle of a series of parables from Jesus about the kingdom of heaven. And so if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, we're going to be in, in Matthew's gospel, the 13th chapter. We're going to look at the parable of the wheat and the weeds, beginning in verse 24. Uh, the substance of the parable, and then Jesus picks up an explanation of it later in the chapter in verse 36, and so we'll read those two sections of, of uh, this from Matthew's Gospel. I'm sure it's probably going to be on the screen behind me as well, uh, and if you're home, it'll be on your screen there uh, as well. And so let's read together from Matthew's Gospel. He put another parable before them, saying, "'The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field.'" But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, he has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow up together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barns. And then the explanation. And then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered them, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the good news of the concrete inbreaking of God's presence and love and power into the world in Jesus Christ. The Jews of Jesus' day were looking for the Messiah, for the king who would usher in the kingdom, but they expected the kingdom to explode upon the world all at once. Messiah would come, and then there would be this explosion of the kingdom. And Jesus came with the language of the kingdom on his lips. You can see that in Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 1. But it did not happen the way that they thought it would. He didn't overthrow the Romans. He was crucified instead, 
things mostly went on the way they were before, at least at first glance. And it was a cause of confusion for many, and it still is. Thus, this series of parables here in Matthew 13, so that we can have the right expectations for the kingdom's ongoing advance in the world. The people listening that day, but us as well. There's a saying, and I don't know who to attribute it to, it's disputed. It doesn't matter, it's good no matter who said it, but it goes like this. Unrealistic expectations are premeditated resentments. Unrealistic expectations are premeditated resentments. It's important to have the right expectations. And here at the beginning of your new church, you're full of hopes for the future you're imagining for your church. And I want to have, I want to help you have the right expectations so that when this day goes and we get to tomorrow and it gets hard and it will, when that happens, your unmet expectations don't become resentments. That's what I don't want to happen to you. I don't want your unmet expectations to become resentments. And so it's a matter of having the right expectations. And the right expectations are really a matter of these three things. You have to view the world through the right lens. You have to avoid unreality. And you have to put your hope in God's ultimate future. Having the right expectations is a matter of viewing the world through the right lens and avoiding unreality and putting your hope in God's ultimate future. And that's what this text teaches us. And so let's walk through it together along those headings just briefly together this morning. So first, if you're going to have the right expectations so that those unmet expectations don't become resentments, then you have to view the world through the right lens. And that's really the purpose of the parable. It's to introduce us to an important biblical framework, all the already and the not yet dimensions of the kingdom. This is a parable about Jesus's kingdom, about the inbreaking of God's reign and rule into the world in Jesus. And so in Jesus, the kingdom has come into the world and you can enter into it and you can begin to live and even build out the new world through repentance and faith. Now the kingdom is already here, but it is not yet all the way, here. not yet. And Oscar Coleman he illustrated this concept, uh, and it's, it's an incomplete, as most illustrations are, but it's, it's helpful, I think. He, he, used, he used the images of D-Day and V-Day in World War II, and he said, you know, D-Day, when the troops landed at Normandy, was the blow that would ultimately win the war. The war was really won the day our troops hit the beaches of Normandy. It was just a matter of time, and yet it was essentially over, but there were still months and months of fighting before it was officially over on V-Day when Germany finally surrendered. And he says it's a great analogy for this teaching of the kingdom here. Jesus came the first time to inaugurate the kingdom, and his life, his miracles, his death upon the cross for sin, his resurrection, that is our D-Day. The war has been won. The decisive battle has been fought. And yet we look forward to his coming again to consummate the kingdom, and in his second coming, that will be our V-Day. And we... In this moment, live in between the two, which means all of God's promises contain both an already and a not yet component to them, and we would be wise to remember that. Or to use the image that Jesus has chosen here, the world will be, it always, it, it is, it always will be full of both wheat and also weeds. That's the lens through which you have to look at the world if you're going to live with the right expectations. And so let's talk about that for a minute. In Matthew, this parable is put side by side with a better-known parable of the sower. You might be familiar with that. And there in both, Jesus is the one who sows. He's the son of man, verse 36 here. But there's a significant difference between the two. In the parable of the sower, the field is the human heart. 
And you're introduced there to these four different types of, of hearing. But here, Jesus explicitly says that the field that's being sowed in verse 38 is the world, and the seed in the parable of the sower is the word of the kingdom, the gospel. But here, in verse 38, again, he says very explicitly, the seed is you and me. He says the sons of the kingdom are the seed that is being sown into the world. And so the first parable is all about how God plants the gospel in you. But this parable is about how God plants you in the world. Let me say it another way. As God plants the gospel in you and it begins to grow and bear fruit in you, then he will then plant you in the world. Now, let me apply this in a number of ways. First, I think that means that you don't have to wonder whether you're where God wants you to be. Wherever you are, guess what? That's where he wants you. You've been planted. You don't have to go looking for God's will. You're right in the middle of it, wherever you are. God has planted City Church right here in the heart of St. Pete. He plants us. But secondly, if you want to do any good, I think this teaches us that you have to put down roots. You have to make commitments to the people in the places where you are and stay put and plant yourself because the kingdom is more about depth than breadth. It's about depth. It's about both, but but mainly about depth. And depth comes from staying in the same place for a long time. But then a third thing I would say is that if you live intentionally, I think this teaches us, over the long haul, if you live intentionally, there is a reasonable expectation of success. That's the point of Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. God is faithfully, slowly cultivating his purposes in the world, and he works in his people and then through them to advance his kingdom purposes in small ways, often through quiet acts of kindness, compassion, and commitment, even when it doesn't look like it. The sower is sowing. Seeds are being planted, and there will be a harvest. Isn't that great news? So remember that and take heart because a lot of the time, (laughs) a lot of the time it doesn't look that way, does it? Instead, it seems like there is more loss than gain. And that is because we're told here, verse 25, that there is an enemy who is also sowing, but he's sowing weeds among the wheat, verse 25. And so we learn that God's purposes in the world are inevitable. They cannot be thwarted, but they are opposed by the spiritual forces of evil principalities and powers and evil persons led by the one identified here in verse 39 as the devil. Christians believe in a personal evil that is loose in the world. And he still has sway, though he has been decisively defeated. His sway has not been taken away entirely yet. And so the result is what we see here, the the, the reminder that the world will be, and always has been, and always will be, wheat and weeds growing up together. Such a helpful picture. That there will always be good and bad things growing side by side, success and setback. That will always be life. Things to celebrate and things to grieve. All the time, both of those. And sometimes in the same day. Because the kingdom is here and there are glimpses, there are tastes of it from time to time. Sweetness, and then the next moment, bitterness which reminds, reminds us that it's not all the way here yet. They're wheat and weeds, weeds and wheat. And the servants of the parable, they, they come to the master and they say, well, you know, because the, the logical obvious thing is, well, do you want us to go out and pull up the weeds? And the surprise of the parable is that his answer is no. And listen to the reason. He says, no, this is verses 29 and 30, no, lest 
In gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them, let both grow together until the harvest. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean we stop trying to do good in the world? We just kind of let things go and trust God in the end for the, you know, for the right outcomes? No, I don't think so. But we have to work with the right expectations. For one, that no matter how committed you are, no matter how competent you might be, there will always be weeds. Don't you hate that? Anybody else? Do you hate that? Because I like to think that it can be some other way. But it won't. It won't ever be. You might spend a whole day in your flower bed, Isn't this, and particularly in Florida. Well, it hasn't started raining yet, but in about a month when it starts raining, you'll go out and spend a whole day in the flower bed, and a week later, the weeds are back. Ugh. It's a never-ending process, and it's a reminder that there's still something wrong in the world that won't be made right until Jesus comes again. But also recognize that as soon as you solve one problem, you create another. That's also part of the teaching here, because... We're part of the problem that only Jesus can fix. And often in our attempts to do good, we undo the good that God is doing that we can't see. That's something we need to take heart, take to heart. I mean, the roots of the wheat and the weeds are all tangled up together. And so if you pull out the one, there's a danger that you might pull out the other two. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's not demotivating good works. He's warning us about what can happen when we begin to act with a Messiah complex. John the Baptist had it right, I think, when he said, I am not the Christ, and neither are you, and neither am I. And so the world is and always will be both wheat and weeds until Jesus comes again to consummate the kingdom, and that is the lens through which you need to look at the world if you're to have the right expectations. But the second thing is, you not only need to be looking at the world through the right lens, but you need to be avoiding unreality as well. And if the world is and always will be wheat and weeds, then wheat-only optimism is out of touch with reality. I mean, the wheat is the already of the kingdom. And we can be so hyper-focused on the already that we forget the not yet and expect too much, too much of our experience of the kingdom. And that's how unrealistic expectations become premeditated resentments. Uh, we have a decent brewery in our town. I think Justin and Angie have been there a few times. And there's a mural on the wall of that brewery that says, optimism will save the world. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? But it's exactly the kind of thing that C.S. Lewis warned about in screw tape letters. Now, I often say you can tell how unprepared I am uh, in my sermon by how many times I quote C.S. Lewis. And there's a few of them in here this morning, if that gives you any indication. Uh, but my favorite of Lewis's books, I think, is Screwtape Letters. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's a dialogue between the senior demon Screwtape and one of his officers, Wormwood. Screwtape is advising Wormwood on how to best tempt people and ruin them spiritually. And at one point... His advice is to keep humans focused on the future because he says the enemy, God, wants to keep us focused either on eternity or on the present moments. God wants us focused on the ultimate consummation of the kingdom and Jesus' second coming or on this present moment. And so one way to distract us is to get us thinking about just kind of like tomorrow or the day after or the immediate future. And so the best way to do that is, is, is to just focus us on the days ahead. He says because it is unknown to them, Tomorrow and the day after and so forth, it's unknown to them so that in making them think about it, we make them think about unrealities. Now, this is really insightful. He goes on, he says, the enemy does not want men to give the future their hearts, to place their treasure in it, but we do. His ideal, God's ideal, is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, washes his mind of the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience 
or the gratitude demanded by the moment passing over him. But we want, we want a man hag ridden by the future, haunted by visions of imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's command in the present, if by doing so, we may make him think that he can attain the one or avert the other. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, but never honest, never kind, never happy now. But always using as mere weed only optimism, this cliched idea that things, cliched idea that things, we could describe someone who doesn't know that they don't know. They lack the experience to know things really work. They're out of touch with reality. And surely this parable is warning us about the danger of such an naivete, that it's deadly. And it's deadly because evil is not naive. Evil's cunning. And so if you're naive about evil, then you're toast. If you're na- naive about evil, evil wins. And this naive optimism will make you lax. It says, verse 25, that the enemy sowed his seed while they were sleeping. They'd become lax. They had allowed themselves to settle in. They stopped paying attention. And the worst part of all of it is, is that if you allow yourself this mindset, it will set you up to fail by making you so easily discouraged when things are harder than you expect them to be. That's what naive optimism does. And so avoid the unreality of weed-only optimism. But if the world is and always will be wheat and weeds, then wheat-only wheat optimism is unreality, but so is weed-only cynicism. It's out of touch with reality too. I mean, the weeds are the not yet of the kingdom, and we can become so hyper-focused on the not yet that we forget the already and expect too little of the kingdom also. And that is surely the point Jesus is making in the series of parables in Matthew 13, in between particularly the telling of this parable in verses 24 through 30 and the explanation in, 20, in 26, uh, it says there that the kingdom is like a mustard seed that starts small but grows steadily until it becomes larger than all the other plants in the garden. And that the kingdom is like leaven that eventually makes its way through the whole batch of dough. And so these are images of the success and the inevitability of the kingdom as it's coming into the world. And Jesus wants us to hold on to that truth. But what cynicism does, cynicism says, well, nothing ever changes. It is what it is. Just is what it is. Just is what it is. Right? You with me? Because the kingdom has come. I mean, just as reality denying as weed only optimism, the kingdom has come. It's advancing throughout the world. Even now, the spirit has come into the world. This is Pentecost Sunday. You guys are going to celebrate next week, but even now... Jesus is here. He's st- Jesus is here. He's still among us. And the gospel is the power of God. I want to le- use C.S. Lewis here too. C.S. Lewis here too. Who said that in a world with weeds, there are really only two options. You can live with a broken heart or with an unbreakable heart. You can keep being hopeful. You can keep showing up to have your heart broken, or you can wrap your heart in a protective layer of selfishness with hobbies and little luxuries and so forth. And he said it will become unbreakable and impenetrable. And he said that's far worse. Now, he's actually using the image of a coffin in that quote that's so famous. And so he says, lock your heart up in a casket to keep it safe, but it's actually deadly. You'll die if you do that because to love is to be vulnerable. And if you do this, it creates a distorted view of the world The commentators all say that the weeds here are probably something referred to as damel, which looks just like the wheat until the very end when it's time for the harvest. 
And that's the problem. That's why you don't go out and pull them up because you don't know what you're pulling up. You don't know. You might be pulling up what looks like a weed, a weed and it's actually wheat. And so weed-only cynicism will rob you of a lot of joy and celebration because what looks like weeds in your life right now might actually in the end prove to be wheat. You just got to wait until the harvest. I've, Paul Miller had the insight that I think is so helpful that, uh, that the cynic is, is really the former optimist that got burned. And so, you know, avoid the unreality of wheat-only optimism but don't let the pendulum swing all the way to the unreality of weed-only cynicism. Here are Paul's words. Paul Miller, not the apostle. I have to distinguish that sometimes. Jesus, he says, calls us to be wary, yet confident in our heavenly Father. We are to combine the robust trust in the good shepherd with a vigilance about the presence of evil. Cautious optimism. Cautious because of the fall, the weeds, but optimism because of redemption, because of the wheat. So... Be looking at the world through the right lens and be avoiding the unreality of both both wheat-only optimism and wheat-only cynicism. But lastly, if you're going to live with the right expectations, you have to be putting your hope in God's ultimate future for the world, the consummation, the close of the age, verse 39. Multiple times here we're told, the close of the age, the time of harvest when the wheat is ready and all of it will be pulled up together and separated out. So let's read again verses 41 and 42. Where Jesus says, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Some beautiful imagery here. The harvest is the end of the age. And that is the time when all of our hopes for the world will be realized, but not until then. I mean, City Church is going to do great things in St. Pete years and years to come. But the victory is not going to come until Jesus returns. The true desires of our heart are not going to be fully met until the time of harvest. And throughout the Bible, harvest is an image of the final judgment, which will usher in the new creation where there will be no weeds. There's going to be a time where there is no weeds. Amen? Right? You with me? But it's not now. It's not until he comes again, but there's a final judgment, and that will be when the new creation is ushered in and there will be no more weeds. But first, sin and evil have to be rooted out and reduced to ash. And that means that every single person here this morning, what this parable is teaching, every single one of us is facing one of two fates. Either you, at the end of the day, at the end of time, either you can be rooted out of the kingdom at the final judgment, like the wheat that's gathered and burned, or God can root the evil out of you ahead of time. Either you can be rooted out on the day of judgment, like the, like the weeds, or he can root it out of you, root all causes of evil out of you ahead of time. Now, if you meet God in judgment without having believed, what we're told here, verse 42, is that it will be as a lawbreaker, as one of the causes of sin that has to be uprooted and thrown out. And according to the Bible, even your good works stand because you use them to rebel against God and not to serve him and love him and others. And you will be rooted out. And your experience of the next life will be what it says here, verse 42, weeping and gnashing of teeth, consuming utter despair and anguish. But there is another option, and that's what I've been sent here this morning to tell you. There's another option, and that is to turn to Jesus right now in faith and let him root the evil out of you. And here's how that happens. In the Bible, the weeds are associated with the curse of Genesis chapter 3, 
that is a response to human sin and rebellion. But the good news of Christianity is that God in Jesus Christ has taken the curse upon himself. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. The cross is the judgment day ahead of time. Jesus became the weeds on the cross and was burned up by the wrath of God. He experienced the consuming despair and agony can root out all of the pride and selfishness in your heart. And you can become like the righteous here, verse 43, who will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Those aren't the good people. They're the saved people. So a Christian is a person who, in turning to Jesus in faith, has had the evil rooted out of them, not all at once. It's an ongoing process from now until the day we meet him. But judgment day will be the very last part of the process. John said it like this in his letter to the churches. He said, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, now, because of unbelief and fear, we do not see the depths of Jesus' love for us. But on that day, when we stand before him, we finally see him, that we will We will see him for who he really is. And just seeing him will root out whatever sin is left in us. It will just instantaneously fall off of us. It'll be burned away by his beauty, by the proximity that we have to his beauty. And and you will be radiant. To look upon you on that day will be like trying to look into the sun. That's what Jesus, that's what, the, that's what the beauty of Jesus can do in your life. But here's the thing, it can begin to happen today. That process can begin today with just one look. If you could catch a glimpse of him this morning, he is so full of glory that just a glimpse will change you. It'll begin even now, even in these moments, in small ways, to begin to root out the pride and the selfishness in you so that when the day of judgment comes, you will have nothing to fear. You will stand among the righteous. And so here's my exhortation to you. Look to him, City Church, as you officially begin your life together. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Consider him so that you might grow weary or faint-hearted in this world which is full of wheat, but also weeds until he comes again. Amen.